You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 57, Video Game Addiction. Last episode, Kim and I discussed the psychology of video games, how they can be good for you and how they can be bad for you. But this episode, we want to explore how playing video games can be a problem when people play them too much. Can someone get addicted to video games? To talk more about the science of addiction as applied to video games, we're going to talk with Kim Hellemans. Kim, maybe we need to start out with the basics. And I know we've talked about this before, but how do scientists use the word addiction? Right. Well, as I think I've mentioned on a few episodes, but it's worth reiterating here today that scientists don't really agree on using the term addiction or even defining addiction. So psychologists and medical doctors, practitioners, addiction medicine docs, people like me, there's no one agreed upon definition of addiction. But that said, there is a definition that I like to use, and I think it will be useful for today. And that's the definition that's proposed by Robert West, who's an American scholar and the previous editor of the journal Addiction. And he wrote a book called Theory of Addiction. And in that, he defines addiction as a loss of control over a reward-seeking behavior. And I really like this definition because, first of all, it really focuses in on that core feature of addiction, which is around that loss of control. People will report that they try to cut back or they try to stop or not have that second drink and they can't. They feel like they are unable to control the the decision around making that next or taking that next drink and so on and so forth. So it's that compulsive nature of addiction that I think is at the center of this definition. And I also like this definition because uh, Robert West embraces that it's more than just substances. So it's a loss of control over a reward-seeking behavior, not just a drug or substance-seeking behavior. So it broadens this definition to include other possible quote-unquote behavioral addictions, which for many years scientists didn't agree that you could have an addiction to gambling. It was called compulsive gambling or pathological gambling. And now uh, there's more of an agreement that other things can develop um, into an addiction, which includes uh, gaming. Right. Okay. So there must be something going on in the brain that's common among addictions, whether there's a substance or not. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So we've talked about um, the reward system in previous episodes. And um, this does seem to be that one common endpoint, right? There's other circuits that are implicated in substances, addictions, but the reward system is the one that seems to be commonly converged upon. Can you explain the key structures of the reward system for our new listeners and our old listeners who might have forgotten and your podcast co-host who has a hell of a time remembering brain areas? Of course, yes. So um, the main structures involved in the reward system, it's, it's a series of structures, right? So there, there's these circuits in the brain. You can imagine like little cities that are connected by highways. And the main, um, the main structures or the main circuit is called the mesocorticolimbic dopamine pathway. Oh boy, here we go. You asked. I I did. I I earned that. Okay, Mm -hmm. go on. Okay. So the mesocorticolimbic dopamine system or circuit uh, consists of cell bodies or neurons, right? 
you can imagine, it's like the head of the neuron. And these cell bodies are located in the middle of the brain, hence the word meso uh, means middle. And then they spread out their axons, like highways into the brain, into other brain regions. And where they make their contacts or where they talk to are brain regions involved in things like processing reward value, learning where a rewarding event occurred, planning to engage in that rewarding event in the future, or thinking about it, remembering it in the past, and so on and so forth. All right. Okay. Are there uh, other brain regions involved? Yeah. So increasingly, scientists are recognizing it's, you know, addictions isn't just about the reward, right? There's other elements to addiction. And one of the other circuits that is key uh, are those that are the circuits involved in in engaging the anti-reward signaling, right? So, you know, the mesocortical limbic dopamine system, when it's activated, pumps out dopamine as well as other neurotransmitters involved in processing pleasure. And the brain wants to oppose that, right? It's like, ah, too much, too much stimulation. So it engages these uh, anti-reward signals to try to bring the the, the brain down uh, to quote unquote normal. So there's so there's this like battle in your brain like between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. Sure, yes. If we want a <laughs> Star Wars reference, uh, for every force of good, there is one that has to counteract it. Right. So uh, as I mentioned, addictive substances and for the purposes of today's discussion, also behaviors lead to that activation of those opposing brain regions that are in place to bring the nervous system down to homeostasis, which is, um, you know, you can look at it as like baseline or steady state. And the the signals that are implicated tend to be ones that are activated in times of stress. And this is why when somebody's in um, withdrawal, a withdrawn state after using substances or even um, eating a lot of sugary or salty food, Uh, What happens is, you know, once the drug is metabolized or the food is digested, you kind of feel blue, you're maybe anxious. And that's because those stress circuits are unmasked because they've been trying to pull down your reward signaling. And now the reward is gone and and all you are experiencing is, is sort of that negative affective state. So, so the stress is countering the dopamine mm-hmm. or is the stress is, okay, tell me more. Mm-hmm. Well, these stress circuits tend to be the ones, as I mentioned, that were are activated when we're facing things that could threaten our survival, right? So when we mm-hmm. face fearful events, we engage that sort of fight or flight response. And these circuits pump out things like cortisol, adrenaline into our bloodstream. And so this is what is unmasked during periods of withdrawal or even can be at higher levels when we're chronically engaging in substances or engaging in these behaviors that could be addictive. Oh, that's that's neat. It's uh, it's your brain, your mind and brain are a battlefield that we're not always conscious of. I always find that super interesting. So addiction involves activation of these brain regions, uh, among others, right? Yep, that's right. Okay, so let's uh, let's bring it back to video games. How does this how does this relate to video games? Right. Well, interestingly, I do remember when I was in grad school learning about a paper published in the journal Nature, which is one of the top journals in science. It was published in 1998, which tells you how old I am, and. Uh, The authors used PET scanning, which is a type of brain imaging technique where you um, inject a patient or a a participant with a radioactive 
label that gets up into your brain and it shows which parts of the brain are active at any given time. So typically it could be radioactive glucose. So when cells are active, they take up a lot of glucose so that the glucose has been labeled and then you put somebody in a scanner and you can image that activity. And what they found was that um, when subjects were playing a video game, and I believe this one was learning to navigate a tank uh, to earn like a monetary reward or money. Uh, what they found was that, lo and behold, dopamine was being released in a region of the brain known as the striatum, which is one of those core brain regions uh, that is part of the mesocortical limbic dopamine pathway. Right. So this tells us that uh, activation in that area shows that video games are rewarding, right? Yeah, that's right. That's the interpretation, at least from that paper. Okay. So we discussed um, a bit in the last episode that video games can be pleasurable, uh, but it's another step to say that they're actually addictive. So uh, tell me about addiction in video games. Well, yeah, apparently, as uh, you know, we wouldn't have been having this episode if it wasn't the case, but apparently, yes, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> video games can be addictive. Really? Okay. Yeah. In fact, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, and the latest edition, the DSM-5, and in fact, they've done a revised edition, but the DSM-5, which was published in 2013, so just uh, under a decade ago, included in their, they have a section at the very back, and the DSM is the, literally what it is, you use it to diagnose psychiatric illness or disorders. Uh, They have a section at the back that is labeled conditions for further study. And as it as you can probably glean, this consists of disorders not yet formally included, but kind of on the cusp of being included. And they have a set of proposed criteria for some of these disorders. And lo and behold, internet gaming disorder, or IGD, is included in there. Right. It's Okay, yeah. Interesting. So what do they say? What are the proposed criteria? Well, it's quite similar to... Um, Substance use disorders, as you can imagine, so they've you know taken some of the criteria for you know alcohol use disorder, or opiate use disorder, uh, and um, translated it to the gaming experience. But I'll summarize it somewhat because it can be quite lengthy. But essentially, you need to have demonstrated persistent and recurrent use of the internet to engage in gaming, often with other players. And that's leading to, and this is important, a clinically significant impairment or distress as manifest by a list of about, um, by five or more of things like preoccupation. So you're thinking a lot, or anticipating playing the next game. You're also experiencing, you could be experiencing withdrawal. Withdrawal symptoms? Like- yeah. Actual physical symptoms when you withdraw from video games? Well, ish, right? So, you know, alcohol withdrawal is manifest by you know, headache, upset stomach, opiate withdrawal, you get the shakes, you vomit. So these are very physical symptoms. Um, with video gaming, it's more, I would say, emotional, psychological, although I don't like to say psychological versus physical because psychological is your based on your brain and your mind and so on, you know. But anyway, so these symptoms are more things like feeling irritable, anxious, or sad. Um, And they're more like mood states, I guess, right? So, uh, yeah, so back to the list. So you need to experience at least five of, I mentioned preoccupation withdrawal. Next is tolerance. 
Remember what that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, tolerance is uh, when you need more to get the same effect. Correct. So with drug use, you you know now you need three drinks to feel drunk. But in video gaming, it's more about spending increasing amount of time. So um, you might need to be gaming for two hours, whereas previously in the past an hour was enough. Um, you're also having a hard time cutting down, so you can't stop. You know, an hour, two hours, even though you've got a midterm or you know you got to go to jo- your job. You can't seem to, to shut it down. You're not interested in doing anything else. Uh, you're using in spite of pro- um, knowing that you have a problem with it. You may be deceiving others about the amount of time that you're spending in gaming. So your parents or your therapist you may have lost a job, a relationship, an educational or career opportunity because of participating in gaming. And finally, uh, it could be that you're using to relieve poor mood. Right, right. Okay, thanks. Thanks. That's great. Um, On that note, we're going to bring in a guest. Today we have a guest, Ian Richard, an undergraduate student at Carleton University, who is a psychology student and also the co-president of the Gaming and Esports Club on campus. Ian, how big is your club? Uh, it's, it's pretty big. It's, I think it's one of the biggest ones on campus. We have about 3,000 members in our Discord server. That number is quite unofficial, though. If I had to guess, we have about 1,200 or so current Carleton students, and the other 1,800 are composed of alumni, guests who are just come around for events, and um, probably some dead accounts as well. Yeah, well, even if it's... Um... 1200 I mean that's that's one out of every 30 students at Carleton <laughs> so it's it's sizable yeah now have you encountered people who've had problems with playing video games too much I have yeah it's um, so the majority of people who are in the club do have some form of uh, time management um, whether for better or for worse just some sort of habit where they keep up with things but there's a, a minority of people who will miss assignments completely, will struggle with motivation, and will even miss like work shifts sometimes. Um, but I think they turn to video games to distract themselves, and the video games end up being a symptom of a greater problem, like depression or a feeling of pointlessness in, in everything, uh, more so than the video games actually causing that. Do you find certain games are uh, like more addictive than others, or does it just depend on the person? Uh, some games are definitely designed to to keep you hooked and be addicted, but it definitely depends on the person more so. Um, a lot of these games that kind of have a have a hook or are designed to keep you keep you in are lacking some form in the in the art category, right? Like maybe the story isn't too good, or just the the gameplay isn't as fun because the so much of the focus, so much of the development time went into keeping you hooked and maybe trying to get as much money out of you as possible because a lot of video games tend to be a little predatory and they are a business first um, and it affects, usually affects the minority as well, but it is, it can be a bit of a concern. Um, it's something I see, I see less of. There's actually, we can go into it a little later, but there's, you guys have covered this in the previous episode for the podcast, but there, um, people can be addicted to the progression systems just very simple to understand very like you know you get you you do a thing you get a reward dopamine boost but um there's a greater issue in or a greater thing in a competitive ranked system where you win you gain points and you lose you lose points and it's relative to your region and that 
we'll go into a little bit more later, I'm sure, but that one's an interesting one because people say they're addicted to the competitive side of things, despite the fact that a lot of the experience of the competitive side can be actually really frustrating. Right, right. And, you know, when I was a kid and video games were invented, <laughs> you know, you just bought the game, like a cartridge usually, and then that was it. Um, to make more money, they need to make a new game. But nowadays, with all games connected to the internet all the time and fr uh, free to play, but pay to get better and everything, uh, the business models have changed too. So they have an incentive to keep you playing and keep you wanting to spend money. And uh, so, so even the, the business aspect of video games has um, b given an incentive to the businesses to make them a little bit more, you know, addictive and to keep you playing kind of compulsively. Now, I, I know that you're a psychology student. We, tell, tell us, tell everybody what a loot box is. Some of our listeners might not play video games. Tell them what a loot box is and how uh, they're kind of pernicious and <laughs> dangerous. Yeah, of course. So a loot box is an item that you get in, in a game that has a set amount of things or consumables that you can get from it. Let's say four or five different things. And um, a loot box is, it will give you a random item from a pool of items, and they vary in rarity and um, desire to, to be wanted. So you'll have tiers in your, some games like legendary items, that's at the very top. You'll have epic items, rare items, common, uncommon, uh, that sort of thing. And loot boxes is quite literally gambling. Um, you often, loot boxes have like a base price of something very small, like a dollar or two. Um, and then what you get is completely random. You get four items, you can get four common items, four uncommon items, three uncommon items, and a legendary. Um, and obviously the legendaries are the most desired ones. Um, and so a lot of these loot box in, in games has actually received some political attention, especially when it comes to kids, because it is quite literally gambling. You are spending a little bit of money in hopes of getting something well more worth it in return. Um, that being said, not every single system is predatory and, and gambling like this. Some of the better, more, more well-received systems are ones where you can actually receive loot boxes just by playing the game. You can you obviously have the option to buy them, but you'll earn a loot box through doing a specific challenge, through playing a specific way, etc., etc. And upon opening these loot boxes, not only do you get um, they're pretty generous with the rare or the uncommon or even the epic items, but you also get a currency for every loot box you open. And this currency can then be spent on a specific item that you want that you could get in the loot box, right? So you can either get lucky and get it with one or two loot boxes, or if you just play enough and earn enough, you'll eventually accrue enough currency to buy it outright. So, and then there's also like a set price of like, this is the guaranteed, like the maximum amount of loot boxes you'll open before you guarantee getting the item you want, just based on the math of how much currency you get on average and stuff like that. So um, some of them are predatory, some of them are, are nicer. And it depends on the game. Yeah, and and some games you just walk around and smash boxes, and they sometimes drop things. I don't know if those count as loot boxes, but all of them uh, have similar psychological effects on you. Kim, do you have a question? Yeah, I'm just wondering. Do you think people are are aware of that it's gambling and that it has an addictive potential? Uh, yes. And and yet that doesn't seem to deter folks. It it does actually. So. One of the good things about the gaming community is that we hold the games that we love to a very high standard. Um, and you'll see this posted on social media a lot on Reddit and talked about. Um, companies do this uh, still because even if we 
people that are really involved in the gaming community hold them to a high standard, there's still a lot of other individuals who are less invested, who maybe don't see it or are more vulnerable or less aware of the effects of it. Um, so me and my immediate group of friends, we don't, we, we t actually avoid games that have very predatory monetization systems because they don't feel rewarding to us. We know we're getting cheated, um, whatever, but it is an issue for the general population and it is especially an issue for, for kids. I think if it's designed properly and fairly where you just feel rewarded for playing, it's less of an issue, but then you bring in kids into the equation and it, obviously their minds are still developing. And I actually, if I had access to my parents' credit card, there's a chance that I would have spent way too much money as a kid because I find some of these games and stuff, but luckily I didn't have the money to get into it in the first place. It sounds a lot like, um, you know, there are many addictive things that everyone knows are addictive, like cigarettes and alcohol. And that doesn't that stops some people, but not everybody, right? So I think there are probably some people who think they can handle it, or and some people who just abstain completely. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And in fact, I even thread that line, and I always evaluate how much enjoyment I'm getting, um, right? Because I I, th I do think that video games have the best entertainment value per dollar. The more you invest in it, for instance, like even in a, a game with like an eighty dollar uh, price tag. A lot of the good ones that I go and I, I will look at reviews, I'll look at how other people enjoyed it. The good ones have hundreds of hours worth of entertainment in them. And if you compare that to a movie, it's not even close, right? Like I'm spending $80 and I'm getting 120 or more hours of entertainment out of it. Um, so I tend to pick and choose. I personally never invest too much money, but I've heard some horror stories of people lose, like spending thousands. I don't know anyone personally who's done that, but I do know what happens. I know you talked a little bit when you got in touch with us about how you might see this relationship between gaming and mental health symptoms. I think you mentioned OCD, ADHD, depression. Um, did you, is there an observation that you've seen? Do you think people are self-medicating some of their low mood or inattentiveness with um, spending more time by gaming? Yeah, I, I do see that a lot. And it's something that I uh, do as as a bit of self-medication um, and it, it really comes down to the distraction. Um, I think in very serious cases, like I mentioned before, people can turn to video games to distract from everything when they're in a really um, bad rut, whether it's lack of motivation, lack of place in the world, lack of identity. Um, and it, serve, it is one of the best distractions out there for that. Um, but me personally, it affects me and my ADHD more so, uh, especially with online school where uh, I actually learned this in, in Jim's class, but um, location, it has a very close tie with your habits. And I, uh, for online school, I try to study at the exact same place that I play games. And that makes it incredibly hard for me and my ADHD distractibility to study properly. And so I had to um, spend a bit of money and buy a laptop to study elsewhere and that helped me and I have a prescription for Vyvanse that also helps but it's not perfect it's not magic. Ian do you know of any resources on campus to help people who are playing video games too much? Yeah so there's not actually any specific resource for people who play video games too much but um, this like the symptom of playing games too much to the point where you're missing things is very, very often a symptom of other mental illnesses that there are resources for. So if you're feeling 
um, depressed or anxious or unmotivated, there are plenty of resources on campus to help you with that and to maybe play games in a more healthy way and consume them in a more normal way. And what might help is finding something else to pass the time as well. Like what helped for me was actually taking sinning lessons or uh, going out a little more, even if it was very infrequent and yeah. Thank you so much for insight into the modern video games and the students who are you know, playing them a lot. And thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks Ian. Of course, thank you. Okay, Kim, reflecting on those interesting things that Ian said, does that resonate with what you know from the scientific literature? Yeah, for sure. And it's devastating to hear that some of these young adults may need some support and there's not really much out there for this specific disorder. Uh, but before we get too much into the treatment, let's keep defining what exactly internet gaming disorder is. Yes, yes, of course. So I guess one of my questions is around the who. Uh, so, you know, uh, are there people at risk and how common is it? So we don't have much in terms of North American or European data. Like a lot of the data actually comes from Asia. We do see a greater risk population of individuals identifying male that have internet gaming disorder. In one study out of Asia, the prevalence was about 8.4% in males. And this is, they would have had to um, meet five out of that criteria that I just listed out. And then the proportion or prevalence in females was about half, so 4.5%. Four, 4. Uh, do you happen to know if that's um, percentage of the population as a whole or population of gamers? I believe it's population of gamers. Okay, okay. So, mm -hmm. yeah, almost a tenth of, mm -hmm. of male gamers. Um, well... So we need more studies in Europe and North America. <laughs> For once, right? We, we don't have the weird population. Yeah. I, I just wanted to ask, why is it internet gaming disorder? Is, this, is there an idea that you can't get addicted to, like, standalone games that don't use the internet or something? Like, what's that about, you know? I don't know. It's weird. I think because the, the concept of internet gaming disorder came out of internet addiction, which was proposed by Kimberly Young right, yeah. in 1991. Yeah. So it's kind of, it, and she had uh, a bunch of subtypes within that was addiction to pornography, addiction to gambling online, relational addiction. So you're using like those um, things like hinge and plenty of fish so you're on the internet dating sites a lot so you can develop compulsive behaviors around that and then gaming was there as well so it's it's a good question i wonder if they'll change it yeah, well more and more games are internet connected now so it might be uh, actually less relevant than it used to be to have non-internet <laughs> true well it's all those the mmos too right that's the ones that are more addictive yeah mmos are yeah yeah and and you know you're mixing the social and the uh, you know quick updates and all that kind of thing so yeah i can understand that so we've addressed what is an addiction and the elements of gaming that make it addictive uh i think it's time to ask what does the brain data say about uh, internet gaming disorder? Excellent question, Jim. So as you can imagine, to study gaming disorder, we can only really look at humans, right? Oh, well, you could train a rat to play Fortnite, right? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Rats are pretty smart, but <laughs> I'll have to say for this one, a little less the case. So that just is my caveat to say that our understanding of the neural basis of internet gaming disorder is somewhat limited because we could only use humans. And 
Uh, that means that we can't really get deep into the brain, right? So we are limited by our technology. We can only do imaging studies, which can offer a lot, but uh, it means that we can't really manipulate parts of the brain and go, ah, what's it doing to the behavior, right? So, hey. Yeah, we also can't ethically manipulate how much people play video games, like to the point of exhaustion or whatever, right? Yeah, correct, <laughs> correct. Anyway, so, um, um, oh, and the other piece that I should mention as a caveat is, uh, because of that, we we're limited in our statements about causality. So we can't, um, you know what I mean? We can't right. say that, you know, this brain region is changed in this population of internet gamers, ergo, they are addicted. Yeah. And that's why. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. right. So, um, so are the same structures implicated in substance use disorders and addictions uh, as with an internet video game addiction? It would appear to be so, yes. So this is why I brought up the brain regions earlier, like what's involved in reward, because it's helpful to say, okay, here are the brain regions that we know are implicated in substance use disorders. If we want to hypothesize that internet gaming disorder it can be categorized as an addiction, then do we see the same brain changes as what we would see with cocaine use disorder and so on and so forth with those caveats in mind, because we can do substance mm -hmm. with substances. We can have animal models. We don't have that with humans. So a study done about a decade ago, uh, they used a different kind of brain imaging technique known as MRI or magnetic resonance imaging. And with these MRI scans, what they found, and this was not in gamers per se, it was 15-year-old boys who were frequent players of video games. So not addiction, let's say chronic users. And what they found was they had more gray matter. So this is the cells, not the axons. So the cell bodies themselves, like the head of the neuron, in indicating more cells, let's say, in a region of the brain involved in reward, that striatal region that I was mentioning earlier. And this was also correlated with the behavior in a task that assessed reward or gambling. And what this suggests is that frequent video gaming changes the part of the brain that's involved in processing reward. That's the interpretation. As I mentioned earlier, that caveat, we don't know if it's that those boys with larger brain, uh, striatal brain regions were more inclined to play video games. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's chronic users, but chronic mm -hmm. users might not have a problem with it. What, mm -hmm. what can we say about addiction? Yeah, so there's evidence for that too. In one study that used subjects who met a criteria for internet gaming disorder, they put them in a PET scanner. So that's the uh, imaging technique that looks at cell activity as opposed to the structure of cells. And they found that they had less glucose metabolism. Now, if you remember PET scanning, um, you radio label glucose that goes to areas of the brain that are active because cells that are firing need glucose to continue to be active. So um, I, internet gaming disorder, they had less glucose metabolism in regions of the brain that are linked to substance use disorders. And this was correlated to not only years of overuse, but also something called the internet addiction test. So I mentioned Kimberly Young uh, a few minutes ago. 
uh, Kimberly Young was the one that developed this internet addiction test based on the criteria for substance use disorders. So what this data suggests is the longer and more severe somebody's symptoms are, the greater the change in the activity of brain regions that are involved in processing reward. And we can sort of by extension say also involved in addiction. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so more severe gaming disorder, does that correlate with more uh, significant differences and changes in the brain? Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of leading to this notion that internet gaming disorder does change the brain. In another study, uh, they found that individuals with internet gaming disorder showed reduced connectivity in regions of the brain that connects the frontal lobe to the reward system. And this was compared to participants who were not just non-users, but recreational gamers. So again, distinguishing that population. It's not that it's not just about playing games. It's the pathology associated with it, the problematic use. Um, so again, they're, they're showing differences in, in connectivity in those circuits. So what does that difference in connectivity mean? Well, it's tricky, but one interpretation is that um, this reduced activity means that individuals with internet gaming disorder may have impaired executive control and that's because the frontal lobe is that region of the brain that is like your your CEO. It you know connects to lower brain regions and tells them what to do, inhibits sort of impulsive thinking, impulsive thoughts. And so if you have less activity or less connectivity to those lower brain regions, again, one interpretation of this is that you're less able to regulate cravings. So um, craving is a big feature of addiction. It's not one of the diagnostic criteria for internet gaming disorder, but it is in substance use disorders. So lower connectivity from the frontal lobe to those reward systems, you're less able to, to inhibit that craving that says, ah, I want to play, right? Your, your frontal lobe isn't able to, to shut her down. Right. So that frontal, that frontal lobe and your executive areas have huge inhibitory connections to the rest of the brain. So... Um, your ability to resist impulses um, is is affected by that. Um, you know, I, you know this chicken and egg thing still bothers me though. Uh, you know, what causes what? Like, is there research that that tries to answer the causation question? Not really. We don't. You know, there could be some out there. I'm not aware of it. But what are needed are prospective longitudinal studies. So what that means is that you're following people over a long period of time. So, you know, ideally, you know, youth, right? But right when they're starting to use video games, you want to maybe do a baseline brain imaging scan. You want to do an MRI. You want to do functional MRI. You want to do PET. You want to look at, you know, white matter integrity, you know, the whole shebang. And then you follow them over time to see are there pre-existing differences in among people who eventually may develop internet gaming disorder that says, okay, there's a predisposition and or is it that the brain changes with internet gaming? So, so many different things that we need to look at. And as you can imagine, these studies are costly, right? So we need a lot of research funding to be able to look at this systematically and in a way that can give us some answers about causality. Yeah. So I guess this brings up to the, you know, the need. Why do we need to know this? What is the benefit? Well, I guess for two reasons, right? One is, maybe three. What I would say one, awareness, right? We need to bring awareness that this is actually an issue, if it is, okay? 
two, to understand how and whether these symptoms resemble substance use disorders. And as I was just discussing, whether there are pre-existing vulnerabilities for these disorders. And third, and related to this, to obviously to have better intervention and treatment for people who may be suffering. Right, right. Which gets us to uh, treatment. So if, you know, it is an addiction, um, you know, do do addiction treatments help like to the same extent they do with other disorders and what kind of treatments are available? Yeah, so that's the sort of way, the approach that's being brought for the internet gaming disorder community uh, is really looking at it through a lens of addiction. And there are some specialized places in the U.S. that cost, I think, something like $10,000 a day. <laughs> uh, and a quick internet search for Canadian treatment reveals, in fact, there are some specialized places. So um, I found one that's in Simcoe, which is uh, near near where I grew up, Barrie, Ontario. There's one uh, called Trafalgar Residence, which is near Toronto as well. So there's a few specialized places that you can go either as an inpatient or receive outpatient care to receive tailored support for people who would have a internet gaming disorder, which is pretty cool. Well, okay. But what if you're not near Barry? Like what if you're one of the million uh, Chinese internet addicted uh, people? What what options do they have? Yeah. So I, you know, I think in China, they actually do have quite, quite a bit of specialized treatment because the problem really started in uh, Asian countries, right? So uh, South Korea, China, to a lesser extent, Japan, they, they, there are much more tailored supports. But if you're in Canada, where, you know, several of our listeners are, if you're in the US, there's lots of places on in the US. But if you're in Canada, I would say, um, and you are struggling and you don't live near one of these specialized uh, centers, you know, sort of what Ian was saying before, if you identify or if you've been, you know, somewhat diagnosed and you're seeing a significant functional impact on your health and well-being, then seeing a psychologist or a mental other mental health practitioner who has expertise in addiction is probably the way to go. And, you know, I, I would emphasize that there are spe- uh, therapists that are specialized with all kinds of addiction, right? So it doesn't just have to be about substance use disorders. It can be gambling. It can be eating disorders, which I conceive of as through, through the lens of addiction as well. Right, right, right. So uh, thank you. Thank you for that, Kim. And, um, you know, some of our listeners might be wondering if they have a problem uh, with too much gaming. Uh, We have some links posted on the website and uh, just want to encourage everybody to be mindful of what you do in all of your life. And that includes gaming and know that it can be uh, it can be so much uh, fun (laughs) that it can be a problem and detract from the rest of your life. So know your limits and uh, be mindful about your your gaming. Thanks, Jim. Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.